Today we'll be reading from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26 from the NIV. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? As, as, did his, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up and up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As um, a child, I loved maps. I liked geography and I liked maps. And uh, my family and I would take one or two trips a year from South Florida to Louisville, Kentucky, which is where my grandparents lived. My dad could have driven that trip without ever glancing at a map because he'd done it so many times. But he always had a big Rand McNally atlas on the seat next to him. 
And he would look at it constantly. He'd pick it up. He knew where we were. He probably knew how much time there was between Macon and Atlanta, but he would always look at it. And maybe because of that, or maybe just an innate curiosity, I would constantly pick up the map to read it, to see where we were. You know what's interesting is sometimes uh, when you're a father, your kids do stuff that's like you, right? And it's very unnerving on occasion. Um, With this, it wasn't so unnerving. I noticed very early on, without me prompting him, my son David would pick up the map. He wouldn't know where we were going. It was before maps were on your phone. Now maps are awesome because you can find out anything you need to know all over the world just by clicking on that map and asking where the location is that you're curious about. I I love maps. So for that reason, I want to start out this morning by showing you a map. Let's see. There it is. Okay. reason I want to show you that map is because that's where all this happens. The story. Jesus is traveling from the southern part of Israel. Say, for instance, where Bethlehem, Jerusalem, down that way are. And he's journeying north up into Galilee. You may be able to see that up there at the top, there's a town called Nazareth. That's where he was born. Now, the most direct, obvious route to go to the north is straight through that area called Samaria. But it's not what most people did. Because Samaritans were a despised race of people. So frequently, a Jew traveling north or south would go over to the right, past the Jordan River, and then up into the section right there called Decapolis, and then cross back over and go into the northern section of Israel. I show you that map to give you context because I think context for every story is really important. Another part of the context is this. The journey that Jesus and his disciples took was probably somewhere around 80 to 100 miles. We don't know exactly. What we do know is that Palestine was about 120 miles north to south. So if you're a map person... You like that kind of stuff? We're talking about from here, just south of Louisville, Kentucky, which would be Shepherdsville, Kentucky. It is almost right on the dot of 120 miles. It would take three days' journey to get there, walking. It would take longer if you went around and skirted Samaria. It's an arduous trip. It's long. It's hot. Some sections have significant terrain in them. And as they journeyed north, they would avoid Samaria. Why? Because Samaria was a despised part of Palestine. The history goes way back to 720 B.C., before Christ was born. 720 years before Christ was born, the northern part of of the kingdom of Israel was taken over by Assyria. 
And the vast majority of the inhabitants were taken off into captivity. But there was a remnant that remained. And which was very typical of that time when you conquered a nation, the conquering nation would bring in other people to the area that it had conquered. But it would take out the majority of the native population. So in Samaria, people from all over Assyria were transplanted into that area. There would probably have been at least five different cultures, maybe five different various religions planted there among the minority of people who were left who were Jewish. Well, I don't need to explain to you what happens. They begin to integrate. They begin to intermarry. And the so-called Jewish bloodline, which was supposed to be pure, according to a Orthodox Jew, was diluted. No longer were they pure Jews. That created a real problem. Not only did it create a problem because the bloodline had been tainted, something that is abhorrent for us to even consider as an issue today. Whose bloodline hasn't been tainted? None of you are going to raise your hands. But somehow they had this norm in their mind and they stuck to it. Not only was the bloodline tainted according to them, The people that were left behind, as every ancient culture did, adopted religious worship. And the religious worship was a form of, let's call it syncretism, right? Various religions from the five different cultures or more integrating into some sort of Jewish religion. Eventually, the monotheistic version of Judaism became the dominant religion, but it was dramatically modified. Modified so much that it created more tension. So, for instance, when you think of Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham being called by God to go to the top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son, a Samaritan would have said, yeah, that's part of our heritage, but it wasn't on Mount Moriah, it was on Mount Gerizim. And when it was time to go to the temple for worship, the people of Samaria, ostracized by the south and later by all the north and the south surrounding them, they created their own temple for worship on Mount Gerizim. Eventually, a general uh, for Israel came in and absolutely destroyed that temple. So at the time of this particular episode with Jesus, the temple wasn't there, but the mountain was still considered holy. You see that in the reference to this holy mountain. There's the background. Now, here's, here's the context that is more deeply the setting, or shall we say, what's going on. Jesus encounters a woman at a well. That in and of itself is unusual. Jewish men didn't encounter women by themselves. They would run the other direction, literally. As a matter of fact, some rabbinic tradition suggested you should never speak to a woman in public even if it was your wife, 
You just were quiet. <laughs> there was, I don't know how often it happened, but there was a, a saying called the blind Pharisees. The blind Pharisees were the ones who, when they saw a woman in the marketplace, they closed their eyes. The blind Pharisee was also called the bruised Pharisee because he would close his eyes and run into a building, right? I think it was more of a joke than anything else, but it was serious. So Jesus encounters a woman alone and he speaks to her. What is also interesting about this is that the woman is alone. That in itself would be highly unusual. Going to the well was an occasion, a social time for women in a particular community. Yeah, they got the water, but they also talked and shared about life. And she's alone. I wonder why. Maybe because she's an outcast, as later we know from the story. Maybe she walked to this well, which was almost a mile from her town because it was the best water around. Or maybe she walked there because she could walk away from everybody else and get her water. What's even more interesting about this is it was at noon. People don't walk to get water at noon. All those situations are present for her. A lengthy walk for water in the heat of the day. By the way, just an aside. You may know, some of you know for sure, because you've done it. We've done this thing called a 6K walk for water, walk, run for water. It's a fundraiser for World Vision. And the reason it's called the 6K walk for water is because that's how much a person in particular parts of the world has to travel every day to pick up water, place it on their heads, and go back to their village. This year, this year we're going to do it right here. We're going to be promoting it, so keep your ears open. If you want to be a part of this, it raises money for people to have fresh water in their towns and not have to travel 6K to find it with a bucket on their head. So that's the condition, the setting of Jesus and this woman. But let's go to the conversation. The conversation opens this way. Remember, it's noon. Jesus is hot. He's tired. And he says to the woman who arrives at the well with a bucket or something, will you please give me a drink? Give you a drink? Why are you asking me that, she says. You're a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan. We, we don't associate with one another. If it doesn't come immediately to your mind, it does to mine. Last week we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And part of the remembrance of that day is a remembrance where times were different. Where when I was a child, not that old, there were separate drinking fountains for whites and for blacks. Separate hotels, separate restaurants, the list goes on and on. Think of that condition which no longer exists in our country. That was the norm for a Samaritan. 
In effect, she's saying to Jesus, wait just a second. Do you not remember the rules? Why are you even talking to me? She might have suspected it was a trick. How are you going to get at me asking that question? Who knows what went through her mind, but she was savvy. Jesus responded with a very interesting comment. He said, woman, if you knew who was asking you for water, you would flip it. You would say to me, give me some water. Because I have water that is living water. You you know what she heard when she heard living water? She heard the best kind of water. Living water was the kind of water that flowed from a stream. It was the purest form of water. Even better than Jacob's well. She hears living water and she says, are you kidding me? By the way, living water, the kind that flowed, was the only kind in the rabbinic tradition that you were allowed to ceremonially wash your hands with. So again, being a little in your face, she says, are you kidding me? Our father Jacob drilled this well. Are you better than him? And Jesus said, I want to tell you something. This living water will well up in you to the point that it will give you eternal life. Yes, in effect, Jesus is saying, I am better than Jacob. The woman says to him at this point, well, look, sir, Just tell me where I can get this water and I won't have to come back to this well all the time. Maybe I won't have to come back at noon when nobody else is here in the heat of the day. Notice that her response to Jesus is very similar to Nicodemus' response to Jesus when Jesus tells him, you must be born again. He said, really, how can I go back into the womb, right? You remember that? She's responding in the same way. Oh, that's great water. I'll have some of that. Where can I go to get it? Or maybe she was just testing him. What we do know about Jesus as we study the gospel of John is he always spoke in heavenly figurative language, but he used real human things to do it. There was a message behind the very human language and people frequently missed it. And on this occasion, perhaps she's missing it. And then Jesus inserts something that seems out of nowhere. He says, go get your husband. What? I mean, nowadays we would take that in itself as being an offense. Can't you just talk to me? Go get your husband? Well, of course, in the culture, it wasn't as offensive. But more than that, Jesus was asking the question because he already knew the answer. So imagine her for a moment. This was going along pretty well, she says to herself. He's not trying to take advantage of me. He's actually introducing me to something that's intriguing. But now he has to ask a personal question. That personal question makes the issue very awkward. I don't have a husband, she says. 
Jesus says, yeah, I know. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not even your husband. At this point, she's thunderstruck. She realizes she's not standing in, in front of a Jewish stranger any longer. She says, wow, you must be a prophet. But I got one more question. Hey, prophet, can I challenge you just one more time? Where am I supposed to worship? My people say in Mount Gerizim, your people say in Jerusalem. Aha, did I stump you, prophet? And Jesus basically says, neither place. The traditions you know about are coming down right before your eyes. It's not necessary for you to worship in Jerusalem or Jerusalem or anywhere else. What you need to do as a believer is to worship in spirit and in truth. Those are the worshipers that the Father embraces. The song the choir uh, sang, I actually requested that and graciously they sang it. If you search me with all your heart, you will truly find me. Whether you're here in Bloomington, in the United States, in the war-torn region of Israel, in Pakistan, in Iran, in Russia, it doesn't matter. If you seek me with all your heart, you're going to find me. Because I'm that kind of God. The time is now, says Jesus. And woman, that Messiah you referred to, you're looking at him. I, I don't know exactly how it played out. But what I want to think, okay, let me use my imagination. What I want to think is when he said that, she went, oh, my gosh, and took off running for Sikor. I got to tell everybody about this. And she did. She told all her friends in the village, I've met this guy. He knows all about me without even asking a question. I think he might be the Messiah. Why don't you come and see? And they came. And they saw Jesus and they listened to him. He stayed there with them for several more days based on their request. And then they said to the woman, we now get it. We believe. Not just because of what you said, but because we've met him. That's a wonderful end to a story. I, I wish that John and other gospel writers had given us a better view of what happened in Samaria after that. Statistics. I'd like to know how many believers emerged out of that moment. We don't know. But what we do see is a moment where Jesus says, the whole thing has been redefined. There are no outsiders. Do you hear me? There's no outsiders. Stop it already. 
It's all about me. And I am for everyone. You know, as I think about this story and many other gospel stories, I'm reminded that in the heart of every human being, there's a deep longing that just won't go away. It's an aching in the soul. You can see it in literature that it's not particularly religious in nature. Like Sinclair Lewis, who writes of a of a man who decided he would just get rid of all his wealth and just kind of try to find himself. And along the way, he, he meets a woman that he falls in love with. And on one of the romantic conversations that they're having, the woman says to him, you know, on the surface, we seem quite different. But deep down... We're fundamentally the same. We're both desperately unhappy about something, and we don't know what it is. Now, if you know Sinclair Lewis, he was not trying to do a gospel presentation. But he did it anyway. There's something deep down inside us that's just the same. It's a longing, which is why Augustine so famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The Samaritan woman and her friends were restless, and they found their rest in Jesus. So first, in conclusion, every human being has a longing in his heart. Second, second, someone has said, and I don't know who, so I can't give him or her credit, but I love it. Someone has said that prophecy is criticism based on hope. Prophecy is criticism based on hope. Think about the prophets of the Old Testament. Man, they came down with all kinds of fire. They criticized the dominant culture. But they were not doing it to bring people to despair and leave them there. They were doing it to give them hope. This is how bad it is, but I have another story for you. And that's the same way it is with individuals when it comes to the gospel. The prophetic message of the gospel, which is really unnerving, talks about sin. Talks about your own despair. It's acknowledging reality. But the criticism leads to hope. And of course, the hope is Jesus. The woman, again, ah, you got me. I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know, said Jesus. You've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. In other words, he said to the woman, I see you. I see you right straight through. 
and still, I love you. That's the best prophetic message ever. The third thing is this. Yes, the good news is absolutely for everyone. Every race, every ethnicity. It's for saints and for sinners. Jesus just obliterates categories of prejudice and steps right into the human condition. Oh my, can we be done with it? Prejudices of all kinds. Can we just get over it and speak the loving message of the gospel? I hope we can. Jesus speaks to the longings of the rich and the poor, of the popular, of the outcast. He speaks the same message to everyone. You know why he speaks it to everyone? Because he became one of us. He walked where we walked. He felt what we felt. He knew loneliness. And he said, come to me. If you're thirsty, I'll give you living water. I uh, read a reference to a story. I didn't read it. Eugene Peterson made it was a book called Salvation on Sand Mountain. Uh, Sand Mountain, if you don't know geography, I'll geek out again. <laughs> Sand Mountain is at the bottom of the Appalachian chain. And it's right, goes right into Alabama. And it's kind of a plateau that is called Sand Mountain. Because it's getting kind of sandy down that way. And the mountains aren't what they used to be further north, there's actually a long, rich history of Native Americans in Sand Mountain. But the book isn't uh, telling that story. It's telling a story of a boy who grew up in Sand Mountain. He, he and his friends used to play there all the time. It reminded me of growing up as a kid. I had woods all around me. And when school was out, that's where I'd go. They played in the woods, they ran. And then when it was time to come home, where there was some event that had to happen, their parents would call them home. And he said, routinely, what would happen is you'd hear a, a shout from a far distance, you know, like your name. It's time to come home now. But, he said, in our family, it was different. Our parents never shouted from a distance. They always came to where we were before they called our name. Peter said, Sam, when I read the last line of that book, a shiver went up my spine because he'd written the whole book to write that line. And in that line, you see a picture of the incarnation. He came to where we were 
and he called their name. He came and he still comes. He's still with you. He still walks beside you. He's still in your home. He's still at work. He's still at school. He's right there with you. And he's speaking to you. Sometimes it's drowned out by the noise. Sometimes you're just not attentive enough to hear it. But he's there. The incarnate Christ is there speaking to you. Do you hear him? Do you hear him? Have you ever heard him before? Listen. Have you heard him in the past and it's getting muted? Listen. He's calling your name. I want to pray, but instead of launching into prayer, I want to stop with silence so that Jesus can speak and you can listen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful that you're with us. Emmanuel, God with us. We're so grateful that you know us. The prophet told us that you have our name inscribed on your hand. And Jesus said, you have every hair on our head numbered. You know us inside and out. You know where we are. You know what we've done. You know our deepest longings. And it makes no difference where we are. You are there. And you love us. So we pray, Lord, this week for all the various people who are listening Whatever their situation is, whether they're yet to believe or they're new believers or believers who have been around for a very long time, we pray that you will come to where they are, that you will call their name, and they will listen. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.